And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, Thursday, second best day of the week as we get uh, earnings season well underway now. And of course, today, <coughs> excuse me, choked myself up this morning. Uh, as we get today underway, uh, lots of regional banks um, are reporting this week. And again, we saw quite a few yesterday. Today, um, there's quite a few more that are coming out. And, and we've been kind of listing these in our daily commentary. So if you go to our website at realinvestmentadvice.com, look up our, um, just click on the insights tab at the top, daily commentary. Uh, we post an earnings calendar every morning so that you kind of know what's companies are going to be reporting and and you know what the expectations are etc and what you'll notice today and i've been and, and normally we just kind of post the you know the big companies right you know a billion dollars in revenue or more we just the kind of the notable companies we list for you but this week i've been listing you know kind of all the way down the list of uh the companies that are reporting because most of them are small regional banks and and so the the big question has of course been you know is the financial crisis behind us is this is this finally over um or is everything is everything okay and a lot of these regional banks are reporting just fine um they're actually getting deposits back uh, so it does seem right now at least that the issue with silicon valley bank was a one-off event uh, credit swiss has always been a problem so it wasn't surprising to finally see that one just stumble and fall it's been it's been a problem child for years uh, just happened to coincidentally coincide, you know, kind of coincide with what was going on with Silicon Valley Bank. But it does appear at this point, though, that Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, those were one-off events. That's, you know, to the Fed's point, those have been solved. And now most of this stuff is behind us. At least that's the way it appears right now. Uh, again, as a lot of these small regional banks, uh, you know, are, are meeting earnings and reporting capital requirements that are in line, et cetera. So, again, no big shocker here. Um, and that's really been giving some support to the markets. Uh, you know, this week has been very interesting because markets have been selling, selling off in the morning. Yesterday, markets opened down uh, a bit and then rallied back most of the day. And that's really been the case here that we've seen over the last week or so. Now, markets really haven't gone anywhere this week to, to really speak of. But the actual underlying activity in the market has been very bullish because, again, we open down in the morning, buyers show up, and there's kind of a steady buying power all day long. And this morning, again, uh, we're going to see markets open lower. Will markets stay lower today? It's possible, um, but markets are going to open lower this morning. Uh, yields also falling this morning as well. So, and again, that's also something else we've seen is yields yields on bonds um, you know, opening weaker in the morning and then rallying during the day. In other words, yields going up, uh, bond prices coming down. So we've also seen that kind of inverse. And, and again, it's, it's this kind of this inverse correlation between risk off and risk on. So as markets open up weak, money flows are going into bonds for safety. But as the buying starts to you know kind of resume during the day, money starts coming out of treasuries to go back at equity risk. And so we've, we've just kind of seen that uh, kind of trend. Now, one thing that we we mentioned last year in particular was to keep a watch out for for earnings season. And we were talking about this in the fourth quarter earnings season. Now, remember, 
in the second quarter of last year and third quarter of last year, this is when we were seeing stocks just get absolutely devastated during earnings. Uh, you know, companies like Roku and others that were down 60, 70, 80, 90 percent from their peak. You know, particularly a lot of these stocks. We uh, spent a lot of time last year talking about the ARK investments, you know, Kathy Wood's uh, ETF. And a lot of the stocks that she owns were down just a tremendous amount. Uh, during the second, third quarter of last year. And as they as earnings were not living up to expectations, earnings growth for certain weren't living up to expectations, these stocks were being repriced rapidly. And one thing that we said back then uh, is that we, as we were going to the fourth quarter is to start looking for companies that are reporting bad earnings, but the stocks aren't going down anymore. And we're now seeing that to a, to a large degree. We've seen a lot of companies come out, report really kind of poor earnings, and then the stock doesn't go down. Netflix was one of those yesterday. Tesla uh, reported just a 20% decline in revenue uh, and income uh, last night, and the stock was down about 3% after hours. So, you know, and again, now normally in, you know, 2020, 2021, and even really 2022, had, had Tesla made that kind of report, the stock would have been down 15, 20%. Netflix would have been, been down 15, 20% on bad earnings. But we're seeing a lot of that sentiment now has shifted saying, okay, I think that's the worst. You know, that the worst is probably behind us now and has been priced into the stock. And, and so these stocks are starting to hold up a whole lot better. And that's really kind of that first sign that you want to start to see where markets are now beginning to say, okay, I think the worst is now behind us and things are going to start improving from here. doesn't mean that they're going to get, you know, phenomenally better it's just that they're not going to get worse and that's really what the markets have been trying to look for and, and and kind of what the markets have been betting on here really so far this year again a lot of this rally this year has been hard to explain like why are stocks rallying we've got you know recession indicators are stacking up everywhere right now so you know why are stocks rallying in the face of a recession well it's because markets price in these things in advance they look for the opportunity to say, okay, I think the worst of this is pricing. Now, could the markets be wrong? Absolutely. It happens sometimes. Things could get worse from here. And there'll be another repricing if that is indeed the case. But right now, what we're seeing is a lot of these stocks that are reporting bad earnings, they're not going down. And that's really kind of that first sign that you want to see that maybe the markets are pretty close to a bottom, at least for this leg of the run. You know, we went through yesterday kind of the technical trend of the markets. And we talked about if we go back over time and look at longer term moving averages, longer term support lines, the market remains firmly entrenched in a bullish trend that has not changed at all. Despite the correction that we had last year, markets remain in a very bullish mode. Now, could that change? Absolutely. But right now, again, there's this underlying kind of bullish bias and money flow that is going into equities and markets. And so it's just something to kind of pay attention to. But this is, you know, this is the challenge of managing money. And this is what we talked about yesterday, is that the challenge of managing money is to listen to what the market's saying and, and, and listen to what the market's doing rather than making an assumption about what you think the markets should do. It's great that you can apply all these fundamental outlooks to, you know, a scenario that you can create but if the markets aren't paying attention to that, then the markets aren't paying attention to that, and you have to act accordingly. So again, it's, it's, it's this balancing act between what you think the markets should do and what markets are doing that makes it really challenging 
to manage money. It's challenging for us. It's challenging for everybody. This is the whole point. So, and again, if we take a look at even how equity managers are positioned right now, fund managers, fund managers are the most underweight equities right now since 2009. So, Again, this kind of goes back to this idea of sentiment and positioning and 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 looking at outlooks. And it was interesting because I posted this chart this morning on Twitter showing that equity managers most underweight in equity since 2009. And immediately everybody starts stinging me bags like, hey, well, if you think you should be long equities, that's all you. The sentiment is so negative everywhere. Positioning psychology, et cetera, that that gives the floor and gives the fuel to a rally in the markets when they occur. And that's what we've been seeing here as of late is that despite this massive negative sentiment, it's slowly dragging investors back into the markets. And that's what's keeping these markets elevated when you think, really, they shouldn't be. All right, we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about break-even inflation rates. What are they? What does it mean? And what does that have to do with the equity markets more than anything else? Talk about that right after break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be. And knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare. Thursday, May 11th with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com The Real Investment Show Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts, of course, as we get underway. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. Um, talk a little bit about break-even inflation rates and, of course, the market and economic outlooks. And this is, you know, kind of a, a few things that are going on that are certainly worth paying attention to. Now, as I was just saying a second ago, you know, when you start to see companies report earnings like Netflix and Tesla and the stocks aren't going down that much, uh, that's actually kind of a bullish sign. But there are certainly some bearish signs out there as well. Trans there, there's an old theory that goes back a ways called Dow theory. And the idea of Dow theory is, as a kind of a economic indicator, is that when indu the industrials part of, of the Dow Jones Industrial Average are outperforming transportation, and transportation is weaker then you're, you're typically probably looking at more of a recessionary type economy and, and vice versa. And, and the reason is you think about, it, right, you know, when you're talking about the economy, everything that we do in the economy requires some form of transportation, either rail, truck, ship, plane, et cetera. And, and this has certainly not gotten any less important in recent years, uh, particularly since we want everything delivered to our doorway now. Um, you know, transportation is a very crucial part of the economic activity in terms of an economic indicator. And so if you start seeing things like rail freight, transportation uh, falling, right? Less, less stuff being transferred through rail or less 
stuff being transferred transferred through you know flight or truck it certainly tells you a lot about what the economic activity is right you know there has to be less if i'm shipping less stuff obviously there's less demand transportation stocks have been kind of sending sending this warning now for the last couple of months uh, they've been trading fairly weak and this is certainly one of those indicators that you know you kind of pay attention to in terms of you know economic weakness potential recession etc now this is this is the, the the hard part of this right is that when you start looking at this you know the economy is very different today uh, than it was you know 20 30 years ago there's different impacts to the economy than 20 30 years ago um, 20 30 years ago we were primarily manufacturing if you take a look at our economy then we we're about 80 percent manufacturing 20 percent service that's now inverted. We're about 80% service, 20% manufacturing today. So maybe maybe transportation has less of an impact than it did on economic activity, you know, than it did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Maybe not. Um, is this time different? Possibly. But I think it's one of those indicators that's worth paying attention to. And this has a lot to do, with, again, with economic activity and other indicators. Before we get to break-even inflation rates, Mike, what, would your, what are your thoughts? Well, the... the problem is you're right our, our economy is what 75 80 percent service but things like trucking like construction construction employment all tend to be very much leading economic indicators everything from the service industry tends to be a lagging indicator so the question is are those leading indicators still leading and there's no reason to suspect they're not However, they are a, a much smaller percentage of the economy. So even if trucking falls apart, can the economy be okay? And you know that that's that increasingly becomes a tougher and tougher to question uh, answer to question to answer. But you know, at the end of the day, it's goods that we're buying, and it's goods that employ a lot of people to produce, to sell, to truck, to market. Um, so you certainly can't look at that information on trucking and say, that doesn't matter. We're a service industry. Well, we all eat, we all drive cars, we all live in houses, right? So goods are very important. And it's just a question of how, how valuable it is as a leading indicator. Um, and, I mean, that's, that's the problem with everything today. A lot of leading indicators are saying a recession is imminent, but they keep saying it. it's like the, uh, boy that cried wolf. Is there a wolf coming? Um, the, the stock market doesn't think so. The, the bond market thinks a little bit, but not really. Uh, the Fed doesn't think so. Um, so. So we'll have to see. Yeah. You know, it's uh, Lance, I think at the end of the day, the problem is there was so much liquidity, both financial liquidity that that's not really dollars raining on the market and actual liquidity via the, the federal government which was literally money raining on, on the markets for people to spend. And that money takes a very long time to exit the system. It, it rehypothecates, it, it, it takes a long time. And we're still seeing the effects and, and it's, it's not even, it doesn't affect all things evenly. So you're gonna see some sectors troubling while others do well and, and you kind of get you know, this very uneven slowdown of growth. 
Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good point and something that we've talked about here before. And, and you use the word rehypothecate, and a lot of people go, what the hell does that mean? That's one of those $5 <laughs> words in the morning. That's, Too early in the morning for them type of, that type of language, <laughs> sir. Um, but no, Mike makes a really good point. I, I published a chart recently. that oh, so, so one of the big charts that's been running around lately is the massive decline in M2 on an annualized basis, right? And so everybody's been pointing this chart saying, see, see this chart, it's M2, and it's on a year-over-year basis, it's completely collapsed. It's actually ne- money growth over the on a year-over-year basis is actually negative, right? So a lot of people pointing this chart and saying, see, that's absolutely recessionary. Historically, that is the case. Um, the year-over-year rate of change was not surprising because you had these one-time inputs in 2020-2021 that caused that, in, that year-over-year money supply growth, as Mike was just talking about with checks to households sent that M2 money supply surging to the highest level on record. So the so when you stop issuing checks, well, what's going to happen? You know, we talked about this with inflation. This is the important thing about inflation. When we talk about deflation or disinflation, right? Inflation is coming down, but if you go to the gas pump, it's really not that much cheaper than it was a year ago. But the important thing about the way we measure money supply growth and the the, the way we measure inflation is is that if gas is $5 a gallon, this year and a year from now it's five dollars a gallon it didn't get cheaper but the inflation rate is now zero because we measure this stuff on a year-over-year basis so it's a little bit deceiving to look at it that way here's what mike's talking about specifically with rehypothecation let's use a real simple example so brent and i and mike were talking about recently about having cash in our wallet you know because everybody's wanting to you know go to digital currencies and i'm an old guy and i, I like cash so here i have a 20 dollars bill uh, y'all may not remember this is what one looks like it's, it's this paper thing right so I had so the government sends me twenty dollars, right? So I go out and spend it. So I'm going to give Brent over here my twenty dollar bill. Not really. Um, <laughs> so there's now been a transaction in the economy. Okay, so I have now spent my twenty dollars. That creates economic growth. Now here's what Mike's talking about with the word rehypothecate. Brent's got my twenty dollars. He now goes to Mike and buys something from Mike because he needs to. I bought a widget from Brent. Now Brent needs stuff. For his new widget, he's got to build more widgets to sell, right? So he now spends that $20 with Mike. Mike gives him the commodities that he needs for that $20. Mike now has the $20, who now has to go out and buy more stuff from commodity producers to build the parts that he needs to sell to Brent later for more widgets. So he spends that $20. So the important thing about this money that was spent and this was the chart I showed previously. If you look at M2 as a percentage of GDP, it is still extremely high. Is it coming down? Yes. But it's coming down slowly because of what Mike's talking about, this rehypothecation. That same $20 is still flowing through the economy, and it's going to take a while for that to really get back to some level of normalcy. It'll take a lot longer than people think. And that's one of the reasons why this, the, you know, the recession has been not so evident right and and this weekend's newsletter is talking about rolling recessions but we're we're, you know we haven't seen that you know all these indicators say hey you're going to have a a big recession inverted yield curves leading economic indicators all these type of things transportation stocks all telling you a recession's coming but it's not here yet and part of it is because of this money spike okay so mike uh, back to you sorry just wanted i thought that explanation was really needed though 
No, but but what's important is everyone talks. You know, this is a great topic, Lance, because everyone talks about money supply as if that's the guide for inflation. The more money, the more inflation, and vice versa. Well, it's actually mon mon monetary supply and velocity. Velocity is just simply how often money changes hands. So, you know, we've said this before. If the government prints a gazillion dollars but buries it in a hole, there's no inflation because the money's just sitting there doing nothing. But if they let it rain on the people and the people spend it, you get inflation because the velocity picks up. But it's not just that one time. It's how quickly does Lance give Brent the money and how quickly does does Brent give me the money and then how quickly do I spend it? And right now, monetary velocity is increasing while money supply is decreasing. And that's why inflation has been sticky to come down. It is coming down because monetary supply is falling quicker than velocity is increasing. Now, I just read an interesting article by Lacey Hunt. I think I'm going to have to read it three more times to fully digest <laughs> it. But he makes a, he makes a really good case that velocity will start coming down later this year, which if you combine that, if the Fed continues to do what they're doing with QT and other monetary uh, policy, that we're going to have much more disinflation, not deflation, disinflation. Right. That's a... That's an inside joke between Lance and I. Um, <laughs> well, no, disinflation. So if in, if inflation goes from five to four to three to two to one, that's disinflation because you still have inflation. It's still positive inflation. It's just growing at a, slash, uh, a slower rate. If you get to negative inflation, negative one, negative two, negative three, that's deflation, right? So that's the differential. Correct, sir. So, <laughs> right. I want my $20 back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but stop right there because i want to pick up there because talking about deflation disinflation i want to get to break even inflation rates and and you and i've been sharing some charts back and forth uh i've got an article coming out tomorrow on break breaking inflation rates um but i want to talk a little bit about what break even inflation is and how that relates to what we're talking about and what that potentially means for markets commodities etc we'll talk about that with michael Leibowitz right after the break don't go away investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning talk a little bit about interest rates and inflation and you know kind of picking up on this discussion we're having about the potential for a recession here and what does that look like and yeah i don't want to say the words this time is different because this time is usually never different but there's certainly some things that are going on that may make it seem as if this time is different and part of that is all this excess money supply that's just still floating around the 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 economy right now that that seems to be 
you know, forestalling this economic recession that everybody's been predicting since last year, right? Um, inverted yield curves, oh, we're going to have a recession, but yet it's not here yet. Not saying it's not going to come, but why is it taking so long to get here? And part of this is because of all that money supply. But this goes to uh, something else that Mike and I have been talking about over the last week and, and discussing, and that's break-even inflation rates. And we started running some research, and we've got an article coming out tomorrow uh, on break-even inflation rates, but we started running some analysis on break-even inflation rates versus other asset classes. And I think what surprised both Mike and I were was the very high correlation between what break-even inflation rates were showing versus outcomes in, in various asset classes and markets and even earnings uh, and profit margins. So it was, it was quite stunning. But anyway, let's let's start with, uh, you know, uh, kind of go to our resident bond expert, Michael Leibowitz, and let's start with what is a break-even inflation rate and, and what does that tell us? The break-even inflation rate is, is really just the difference between what a tip, a treasury inflation protected bond yields and a, a regular bond yields. And what's important is you have to take the same maturity of bond. So if you're looking at five-year bonds, what what inflation rate is a tip telling you and what's the nominal yield telling you and you subtract the two and that's the break-even rate if inflation is going to be higher than a break-even rate you prefer the treasure the tip bond and vice versa if it's going to be lower you prefer the nominal bond but regardless of what it is that's the market voting and keep in mind the bond market is the most liquid market in the world it's much more liquid than the U.S. stock market and far and away more liquid than almost every other market. So so you have an incredibly uh, large, diverse, global uh, liquid market telling you what they think the inflation rate is. It's not going to be right. It's very rarely right to the penny, but it doesn't matter. That's what the market thinks is going to happen. And that's where then investors can make their bets. Is the market right or is the market wrong? Uh, and that applies not just to inflation, but that that carries over to bond markets, which carries over to stock markets and all kinds of other markets. So the break-even inflation rate is something that all economists look at. The Fed stares at that number. They, they've, they've made quotes at times that say they almost care more about that than inflation because it's such a good gauge of where everyone thinks inflation is going to be. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what the Fed really focuses on, not what it is today, but what's it going to be tomorrow. If you told Powell that inflation is going to be 2 percent by the end of the year, he'd probably start cutting rates now. Uh, but, just, yeah. And just real quick, what is the difference uh, just for our, our, our viewing audience? Um, what's the difference between breaking inflation and real yields? Because those we have those terms both thrown around a lot in, well, in the markets. Well, real yields are just, they're, they're very similar, but it, it's how do you want to calculate it? So real yields can be the, the yield on the five-year treasury minus the current inflation rate, or it can be minus the expected inflation rate. And they're all variations of, they, they kind of get you to the same point. They're just, it's algebra and you're just really flipping numbers around. <laughs> it's X's but it, and Y's and real chromosomes. Yield is what, what you're really, it's really what you're really earning as a bondholder. Yeah. So if you have a 5% bond and there's 5% inflation, your purchasing power isn't changing over those five years. So, so what is break-even inflation rates? What are they telling us now? Um, is 
inflation expected to fall more is expected to rise because this has as we'll as we'll discuss here momentarily that direction has a very high correlation to what other things do in the financial markets right so it depends on what term you look at one year break even inflation is very different than 10 year break even inflation 10 year break even inflation has been falling but it's still i think it's what like 240 yeah so it's still well above the norm which is sub 2% 180 190 something like that but 10 year inflation break even inflation is looking out at the next 10 years so yeah we may have 5 6% inflation this year and maybe even next year but it's going all the way out to 2033 and what's inflation going to be in 2029 and 2031 etc um and the Fed looks at that, but they, they really focus on kind of the really short term break even inflation, which has not been nearly as high as CPI. It, it never predicted CPI would get as high as it did, but it's also continuing to kind of drip lower. It, it's not crashing back to 2% like the Fed would like. Let's 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 go back to that statement real quick. You said that uh, the short-term inflation break-even inflation rates never predicted the inflation that we saw. Is it that the break-even inflation rates missed it or were the was the market saying we understand that this inflation is going to be a temporary spike because of all this monetary flow and we expect inflation to come back down pretty quickly. Um, is is that but, what the market was was expecting or did they miss it? I, I think they didn't, you know, like all of us, the Fed, the market, everyone, they didn't uh, appreciate how long it would last. It's not that they missed it. So if you think inflation is going to be 10 percent for six months and then go back down to 2 percent for the next six months, then your break even inflation rate 6 percent for the one year. Right. But if inflation stays at 10 percent, you missed it by 4 percent. So I think it's kind of what's been going on for the last six months nine months regarding inflation that it's just it's come down but much slower than all the break-evens uh thought it would yeah um but this is the interesting so once we start talking about longer duration uh break-even inflation rates 10-year the and looking specifically at the 10-year where it is predicting out further into the future about where inflation will ultimately be and you figure that asset investment, you know, the stock market, you take a look at um, oil prices, energy prices, commodity prices, um, you know, those tend to be based upon future expectations of economic growth, inflation, et cetera. And what we found out through our work was is that there's actually a very high correlation between longer duration break even inflation and not only annualized stock market returns, but also. Uh, very high correlation to energy stock prices as well as oil prices. Very high correlation to corporate earnings and corporate profits, which are all based upon future expectations, right? So we start talking about forward expectations for earnings, forward growth, those type of things. Um, you know, the the correlation was was fairly stunning as to you know the degree of you know as inflation falls, inflation expectations fall or rise. Um, those asset classes tend to track fairly closely. And, and I think the reason for that is that inflation, forget the last couple of years, but inflation is typically a function of demand. Supply is relatively constant, so it's demand. And demand is economic activity. So when break-even inflations are rising, the market's telling you there's more demand, economic growth is going to increase, and vice versa. So, uh, you know, 
when you kind of think about it, what what break even inflation again, not inflation, but break even what the market thinks they're kind of voting, they're, they're kind of voting on the economy. Right. But in the last three years, we've had crazy demand due to all the liquidity pumped into the market, plus all the behavioral effects of COVID and when people saved and then spent. And some of that is still going on today. And then you had these massive supply line problems around. And this is global in nature and massive supply line problems. So the whole supply demand function is completely screwed up. It's healing, but it's healing slowly. And that that's why break evens. No one, no one in the, you know, in the bond markets, tips and regular bonds mm-hmm. saw what was coming. And I, I just think it's hard to see what is coming. Um, yes, it will normalize, but is it going to normalize in the next six months or is it going to take three more years? And I, I think when we start thinking about the markets this year, and Lance, we, it, it was our first Thursday in January. Right. We let off. What's the key to the, you know, you asked, what's the key to the market this year? Keep your head on a swivel and we're going to be audibling all year. We're going to be going from bullish to bearish to bearish to bullish and back and forth because there's so many variables in this market. And yes, a recession looks likely if you look at all the traditional indicators, but there are just as many bullish indicators that say the market's going to rally. And there are plenty of pundits that don't think that think we're going to have at worst a very mild recession and at best a soft landing. And they make some decent points. Other people think we're going into a really bad recession. And just the diver- the, the wide range of of estimates and forecasts is, you know, we haven't seen this in a long time. Right. I know. It's, and this is going to be the challenge this year. And, and again, you know, you take a look, a lot of the economic data and what kind of what's going on supply demand money supply i mean there's certainly this is this is the the whole point we're making earlier it's a very easy case to make for a recession bear market very easy case to make the market is not buying it and that's a really interesting situation that we're in right now uh, in terms of managing money. Come back from the break. We're going to wrap up the show. Got a couple of things to get into this morning. Uh, earnings, quite a few are out already. We'll talk about how some of those are impacting the market early, especially on the regional bank side. Zion, KeyBank, others already reported this morning. Uh, we'll talk about what those stocks are doing. And also, if you have Gen Z kids, we'll talk about them as well. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so welcome back to the show this morning it is of course uh Earnings week, as we've been talking about for uh, before, and, the, and, the, and this week in particular, is a lot of banks. This morning, Zion uh, Bank in particular, uh, KeyCorp, as well as uh, several others have come out and reported earnings. And, and Zion and, and KeyCorp in particular missed earnings estimates. Those stocks are down this morning. Uh, Zion's down about uh, 5.5% this morning. Uh, a little bit of earnings weakness. But again, no real concern here in terms of they, they just light earnings, right? It's not... 
you know, any major debacle here. Just again, the, the big focus right now is trying to figure out is that banking crisis behind us? Was Silicon Valley Bank and was First Republic Bank a one off event? Or is there potentially more contagion out there, particularly in some of these banks? So everybody's been watching very closely these bank earnings. Some have been okay, some have been in line, some have been a little bit weaker, as with Zion and KeyCorp this morning. Um, that's certainly weighing on markets a bit this morning. Dow's down about 150 points or so this morning. Again, though, we've been opening week in the markets and then rallying back. That's been kind of a common theme here over the last couple of weeks. And that's not surprising because we've been on, on bullish buy signals. The market's been in a bullish trend. And so there's momentum in the market. So whenever there's some weakness, people are buying it. That's what you would expect. Now, we're getting a little bit long in the tooth for this particular rally. Um, again, most buying, what we call buying stampedes or selling stampedes, they tend to last between 14 and 20 sessions in general, about four weeks. Um, and we're now in week five. So sometimes these, can, these, these rallies can go on a bit longer than you would expect. But again, we're kind of getting fairly long in the tooth. And even our, our, buy, indica our buy indicators are, are starting, to, starting to narrow here a little bit, suggesting we may be closer to the end of this rally than not. And again, another corrective period in the markets. Again, that doesn't mean 20% down, but just a, a pullback um, in the markets is not going to be surprising. And as long as the, the bullish trends kind of hold here, it'll be a buying opportunity to add some exposure to portfolios. But again, for if, if you're trading the markets, probably getting fairly close that time to start maybe taking some profits out of trading positions and just kind of reducing, you know, raising a little bit of cash here until you get the next opportunity to, to buy things. Again, you know, earnings season, we're still very early in this. Um, by May the 5th, which will be week after next, we'll have about 88% of the S&P 500 reporting. And so if there's going to be some support to the market from earnings, it'll come from that. But so far, earnings have been kind of eh. Uh, they're not great. They're not terrible. Um, they're basically beating estimates. Remember, estimates have been lowered dramatically since May of last year. So the fact that companies are beating estimates really isn't a sign of victory. <laughs> it just means they get a trophy um, for doing that. But, Mike, I, I, wanted, I do want to talk about everybody getting a trophy. I do want to talk about Gen Z here uh, real quick. But uh, any comments on earnings season so far or what you think? No, the big banks did well, which was expected. They're not losing nearly as many deposits, and they're able to pick up you know, deposits from the smaller banks. The smaller banks are just starting, so we don't really know what's going on there. Uh, Netflix and Tesla did not do well. Um, but their but, prices aren't down know, that, but the stock prices haven't right. fallen that much. Right, right. So from a purely trading perspective, you know, in our commentary this morning, we say that the uh, Netflix news is bullish. Uh, the news itself isn't bullish, but the way the stock is trading around the news. Because if you remember this time last year, Netflix would have been down 20%. Yeah. You know, it was common to see stocks, even the big boys, dropping 10, 15, 20% on earnings that didn't meet expectations. But, but what they did said is that they're going to accelerate their buybacks. So we're buyback, we're back into a buybacks or bullish mode. Um, and of course, if you say IA, or I'm sorry, AI, artificial intelligence, in your earnings release, that's worth another few percent. <laughs> so, you know, these are some of the games that are played. Um, and and but, speaking of, by the way, that's exactly what Elon Musk did um, 
as, as they're reporting earnings, he's talking about starting another company to compete with chat GPT, which was just sold to Microsoft, which he was an early investor in to start with. So now he's going to, now he's come out and said, Oh yeah. And, I, and I'm going to start another AI company. So maybe that was one reason Tesla stocks holding up better. Right, right. But Lance, look at the end of the day, the first quarter GDP was good. It, we don't know what it is yet, but estimates are what two, two and a half percent. So, so, so economic growth was fine. Earnings should be fine in general. It'll be interesting to see how some of the leading indicator type companies like trucking, housing, uh, fair, uh, don't, don't expect anything from the service industries. They tend to lag. Um, and, but you know, what, what, what I think is most important is what do companies think of the future? Where are they guiding investors as far as future earnings and revenues? And that'll probably be the most telling part of this earnings season, not the earnings themselves, because it was a, you know, we've had a few quarters in a row of good growth. So let's just see what they have to say. Yeah. And from the banks, I think the most important thing from the banks is what are they doing with their financial lending standards? Are they lending less money? How much less money? What are they doing to make up deposits? Uh, because at the end of the day, credit is the lifeline of our economy. And if banks slow down their lending, that will put us in a recession. It yeah. always has and it will but yeah. how much will they slow it down is it meaningful um and they're not going to tell you exactly but but pay attention especially these smaller banks because they're the ones that own a lot of real estate that lend to real estate and there are troubles in the office side of commercial real estate right now yeah speaking of uh real estate and mortgages uh interesting article out this morning a new rule from the biden administration is now going to force home buyers with good credit and those that pay down higher uh, down payments on houses. So if you put normally would put a 20% down payment on a house and then take out a mortgage and you have good credit, you're now going to be penalized for doing that under the new mortgage lending rules that the Biden administration have just passed um, because they want to subsidize people with low income and low down payments and low credit scores. So the new fees will create extreme confusion around traditional spring home buying purchase. The changes don't make sense as those individuals that penalize borrowers with larger down payments and credit scores um, will be having to pay an additional fee, which could amount to as much as $40 a month on a mortgage of $400,000. So if you, if you annualize that over a year, that's not chump change that you're going to be adding on to a mortgage payment. I think that's interesting coming at a time where we already have you know, two problems with housing in particular. One is that we have institutions that are buying massive blocks of homes for uh, investment funds, et cetera, which have been keeping prices elevated and elevated prices out of the out of the reach of a lot of lower income individuals, middle income individuals. Uh, we've heard a lot of stories about frustration over buying a home, but yet now we're not we're not limiting those buyers which have have absorbed inventory we're now going to penalize good credit scores and good savers so uh you know what i'm reading from this is is that before you want to buy a home go run up a bunch of credit card debt default on it and then spend all your cash then go get your mortgage so you can save some fees it makes no sense but that's that's kind of where we're getting to in the economy today <laughs> uh, but speaking of, of of that um gen z as parents, Mike, you've got some Gen Z kids, right? Too many, yes. Yeah, so do I. Um, 
twelve percent of man. We have we have a job to do as parents uh, with our Gen Z kids, um, and they're not too old to start talking to them right now today. Twelve percent of managers say they fired a Gen Z employee in their first week of work. The top reason was being too easily offended was often the case. 75% of managers in the recent survey said Gen Z are more difficult to work with than other generations. 12 to 16% of that group, as I said, say they have fired people within a month for being offended. They are not motivated. They don't want to work under the guidelines and rules that the corporation that the company sets up. Uh, many say, many of the employers say they would rather work with millennials or Gen X employees because they are more productive and this was a new survey from resume builder uh, that they surveyed about 1300 managers and the, again 74 percent of them saying gen z very difficult to work with too easily offended lack of motivation to work don't want to comply with the rules mike what are you doing to, to help your kids perform better in the workplace <laughs> you know my kids have been working since they were about 16 and they've held on to jobs. They, I don't know. I, I don't, maybe I don't raise my kids, my Gen Zers, like most Gen Zers. I feel like they're a little more thick skinned, that they're, they're more used to what, I, what we grew up with, a, yeah. a harsher workplace. So, I mean, you know, hopefully that works. I don't well, know. I it, don't have great answers. But so whatever it was, but I think, it worked. I, no, I think you're right because, you know, I've may, always made my kids work since they were 16 and, you know, it's it's interesting that, you know, they that when they start to try to come up with this, oh, I'm offended about this or that, you know, we have very serious conversation about this and it usually involves a smack upside the head at some point. Um, but, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, we have to, to do a better job with the next generation coming up to make them good functional employees and, and good and good and good societal citizens. Right. I mean, it's you know, there's so much stuff in social media and everywhere else. You know, that's that's been one of the big problems. Everybody thinks it's OK to be offended. It is OK to be offended. It is your right to be offended. But it doesn't mean that, you know, somebody else doesn't have the right to offend you either. So just get over it and move on and do your job. Um, really quick, uh, statistics don't lie. Average duration of a phone call, boy to boy, lasts about a minute. Boy to their mother, lasts less than a minute. Boy to dad, about 30 seconds. Boy to girl, an hour and 23 minutes. Girl to girl, five hours and 29 minutes. Husband to wife, three seconds. Wife to husband, 14 missed phone calls. <laughs> So that wraps up the show for the day, of course. <laughs> uh, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, be sure and give us uh, your questions, comments, emails. Always happy to help you out. Our blog posts on break-even inflation rates and what it means for markets, commodities, etc. will be on the website in the morning. Uh, so make sure you get by realinvestmentadvice.com then to get that. Also, again, latest video, podcasts, more. Make sure that you subscribe to this channel and click that little bell icon uh, so you can get notified for when we post new videos every single day. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you back here tomorrow for Financial Fitness Friday with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. We'll see you then.